On this episode of the Actual Fluency Podcast, I'm joined by native speaker of Esperanto, Gavin Phantom, to talk about the language and also how he was brought up speaking it as a first language. saying hi if we talked or anything. It was really a great event for me and it was really quite amazing to have people come up to me and say, oh yeah, I listen to your podcast, I read your blog. You know, it really is a nice feeling to get that. So if you're out there, you're listening, don't hesitate to send me a a comment or leave a a review on iTunes or anything that you feel like doing. It, It really does help and I appreciate every single one of them. At the conference, I was fortunate enough to persuade, I don't know if I was fortunate enough, but I was fortunate enough that many people accepted my invitation to come and sit down with me for uh, half to a whole hour and talk about language learning and languages in general. So over the next coming uh, weeks, you're going to hear some of these interviews from Berlin. They're going to be with people that you've definitely heard about. I'm not going to spoil any of the surprises. But it starts today with uh, Mr. Gavin Phantom. And what's interesting about Gavin is that he's a native speaker of Esperanto, meaning that it was, he was brought up with Esperanto as his first language. And therefore, he is probably the best chosen to talk about Esperanto. And the reason I'm talking about Esperanto is because during my stay in Polyglot Gathering Berlin, my kind of impression of Esperanto has greatly changed because and, and I talk about about this with Gavin in, in the interview segment, but basically the, the whole idea is that if you're looking at it from the outside and you don't know anything about it, it quickly looks like you know a bit of a secret club and people hanging out around their own language. But after having met a lot of these great people and talked to learners of Esperanto as well, somebody like Benny Lewis's girlfriend, Lauren, having talked to her about her Esperanto project and how, seeing how far she's come in six weeks, and kind of hearing her feelings on how the community embraced her really kind of leads me to believe that the preconceptions I had about Esperanto were mostly uh, erroneous. So what I've decided is that I'll get into Esperanto. I don't know when or how, but I would uh, go on to uh, fluent31.com and, and check out Lauren's you know, videos on the matter because she's doing it or has done it. And I'm sure that if, if it works for her, it could work for me too. So I'm excited about that, and I'm excited to bring you an Esperanto episode. And if you're an Esperantist out there listening, um, whatever that 
word kind of implies we do talk about it in, in the videos but in the in the audio but basically an esperantist i'm assuming is somebody who speaks esperanto and but still some people decide decide not to go by that title so but anyway if you are uh, an esperanto speaker out there listening to this i want to say well thank first of all thank you for listening and second of all i want to apologize if i make any uh, grave mistakes in the interview segment based on ignorance because uh, it's very easy to have, as I mentioned, preconceptions about language or indeed a community. And so some of the questions I'm asking Gavin might seem a little critical of the whole movement, but don't worry about it. It's only, uh, you know, in, in order to kind of pro uh, provoke a, uh, a good response from Gavin and, and he was a good sport about everything. So I don't think I overstepped any boundaries, but at times I, I did bring out some kind of common, well-known criticism. The last part I want to just briefly touch on is that the interviews were recorded in the hotel room. And of course, the hotel rooms in a little German cheap hostel are of course not soundproof. And I was unable to find any really good places to record. So if you feel like there's a bit of a roominess to it or a bit of a noise that isn't usually present in the podcast recordings, then I do apologize for that. But that is the kind of the sacrifice we have to make of our ears when we are doing sort of live recordings. These were recorded live in Berlin in the last week or so. And so, you know, the the audio quality is as, a, is as good as I can make it with my uh, measly editing skills. And I did attempt to make it as good as possible. So I hope you'll enjoy the interview today with, with Gavin Phantom and the coming weeks with other great polyglots. If you have any questions, or comments, as per usual, feel free to leave a comment anywhere. I'm sure I'll see it. YouTube, uh, the blog, uh, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you like, uh, even using the contact page on the actualfluency.com website, and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being amazing at the Polyglot Gathering in Berlin. If you were there, I can't wait for the next one. So here is the interview with Gavin Phantom about Esperanto. I'm joined today with Gavin. Gavin Phantom, is that how you say it? Gavin Phantom. Phantom, okay. Yeah. So you, you maybe anglicised it a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. It's a cool name. And um, I've, I've brought Gavin here to talk about Esperanto. And um, I know that a lot of people might not have heard of it, or maybe you've heard of it, but don't really know what it means. Um, so we'll get into that. But first, I just want to ask you, how are you feeling about the conference so far? Are you enjoying it? Are you hanging out? And I'm absolutely loving it so far. Um, I've, I've almost had enough sleep, but yeah. <laughs> it's getting difficult with so many interesting things to go to. Right. I've had an absolutely amazing and somewhat overwhelming experience just with all the different languages going on at right. the same time. It's it's tiring, but it's really good. Yeah, and of course you're sleeping in a new bed and stuff. I, I definitely had trouble sleeping, so when you have to... It's like mentally draining, isn't it? It's not physical. You're not physically tired, but it's like, oh, my head is tired. Don't you feel that way? Oh, it's long enough day. I just <laughs> don't count. <laughs> it's just completely gone. Uh, that's great. And um, of course we're talking about Esperanto today. Did you have any other languages that you went around and, and talked a little bit in or was it mostly that you were focusing on? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, when I arrived, you know, I was just putting my stuff down on my bed and I, I, somebody came in and, and talked to me in German and, um, and, and when we 
reached the limits of my German, um, we switched to Esperanto, and when we reached the limits of his Esperanto, we switched to Serbian. <laughs> when we reached the limits of that, we eventually discovered that we both more or less natively speak English. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool. That is the real, what, one of the eye-openers for me, is that you can have two people uh, from the same country who speak perfect English, uh, as this example, and but you speak other languages almost like you didn't even care about English. It's like, I, I find that experience great. Yeah, and, and I do it all the time with uh, with some of, some of my friends, you know, uh, Chris, who also lives in, in the studio. Um, we talk, of course, we have English, both of us, but when we speak another language, it's almost like there's something going on. I can't really explain it, but it, it's pretty cool. And some of you see these events, I guess. Um, That's nice when you have a choice, isn't it? Yes, fantastic. Yeah, like, um, and some people have like 10, 12 fluent languages here, which is insane, I feel like. Yeah. Like, I mean, I need to get them in the studio and, and drill their heads about this because it's just unbelievable. I mean, it takes time, of course. Time is probably the most important factor, but just to be able to juggle between 10 different languages, so just like casually turning around and then you switch to Portuguese and you go to whatever, you know. Well, I was in a, um, a talk before lunch. Uh, it's absolutely inspirational. I mean, the guy was there just talking. He was telling the story of his like travels and, and languages that he was learning. And every three or four sentences, often halfway through a sentence, he just switched to another language. Wow. And I just completely lost count of which languages he was speaking. Yeah, he's really incredible. I haven't actually talked that much to him, but I want to do it. I want to get him in the studio. Like, I want to get everyone yeah, in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Gavin, of course, you are known by the people around here, and that was also your talk, it was Esperanto. And if we were, we, we were talking about what to talk about today, and, and we had, had probably had to start with, what is it anyway? What's the, the kind of the cliff notes on the actual story behind, and, and, and how did it become kind of this big thing? I mean, it is a big thing around here, definitely here in this community, but also around the world, it's growing and growing. So, so what is it, Esperanto? So Esperanto is a, um, well, in different categorizations, a conlang, constructed language, an international language, an artificial language, an auxiliary language, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's been around for a while, actually. Yeah. Um, it was originally published uh, back in 1887. Right. So it's had a while um, to, you know, mature a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's not a very long time on the timescale of language evolution. Sure, sure. But it's long enough to have several generations of, of people speaking it, to have moved with the times, acquired new words, and really to grow a community. Right. So what was the original kind of philosophy behind? Because obviously we have, I think the latest estimate is about 6,000 languages to choose from. So why did this person decide, that's not quite good enough, we need something new? What was the reasoning? Do you know any of this? So, um, yeah, so Zamenhof, who uh, created the language, um, he was living in an area which, let's say, was not particularly stable. Right. Um, there were a number of different populations who had different languages, who had frictions, uh, quite significant frictions. Right. Um, and his idealism was that maybe his contribution to solving this and to, you know, in a grand sort of sense, achieving world peace, yeah. was that if each of these people, you know, if they could speak a common language, right. if they could talk to each other, if they could communicate, they might start, you know, buying each other beers or something rather than <laughs> killing each other. Right. 
Um, that was the philosophy to bring people together. It was, yeah. And there's, you know, a lot of the um, the the construction of the language is is designed with this idea in mind that it should be a second language. It should be something that people can acquire later in life. Right. Right. So. I mean, from the from the very beginning, his goal was to make it something that was possible to learn as a second language. Right. Because he didn't want, you know, he, you could have taken one of the languages of the groups and made everybody else learn it, but then, yes. you know, that gives somebody a privilege over the others, and you know, it's yeah, he didn't really want that. So, I see. but but of course, I'm, I'm talking to you about Esperanto because you you have the quite unique uh, experience of having been brought up uh, with it as a native language yes. and, um, and we'll get back to that in a second but you, you say that it was made to be a second language or an acquired language in what sense was that reflected in the language do you have any examples or like is it because it's just so simple or so it shouldn't be too hard it's basically that right. um I mean, if you're going to, if you're actually generally wanting people to learn your language, you're going to make it something that people have a hope of learning. Right? Yeah. Contrasting with that, you still need to make it expressive. You still need to make it general. Um, and so this was the the balance that Zamenhof tried to achieve with yeah. Esperanto was was to try and make it, you know, a full language um, and fully expressive. Great, but without some of the more complex issues that some of the languages, some of the, let's say, natural languages right. um, have evolved. So something so, like cases or ten, complex tense creations and, and stuff like that. Well, there is some use of cases, and you can make complex tenses, but it's done in a way, certainly the tenses are done in a way that's, um, you know, follows some kind of logic. Okay. Um, and, and are you know, pretty regular. Um, you've also got um, things like conjugation of verbs. Okay. That's something that certain classes of language um, make really quite difficult. Yeah. There's a lot of things to actually learn there. Um, so the conjugation in Esperanto is, is pretty straightforward. But there is conjugation. There is in the sense that um, you, you conjugate the verb to indicate the tense. Right. So, but not the speaker. Right. So it's like Danish, actually. That's what we do as well. Okay. Present tense for every speaker is the same. And then if yeah. the past or a future will change it. But, yeah. Uh, so that's nice. That makes it easier because some of the hard things about, say, Russian or I guess even German is that it just changes all the time. Yes. So, and when you, in particular in German, because all the verbs come at the end, by the time you reach the end, you're like, what was the subject again? <laughs> you're like, you just put something random in like third person or whatever. Yeah, it's probably third person. <laughs> yeah, each language has its idiosyncrasies and you know, the word order in German, the um, right. the, the cases in some languages. <laughs> but, but but Esperanto, thankfully, was was simplified and then they took what was what was useful from kind of the cases and the verbs of other languages, but they made it into a kind of a more simplified and, and still practically useful way. Yeah. I mean, some people will claim that Esperanto is somehow perfect. It isn't. Well, yeah. right? It can't be. It was the work of one person. <laughs> you know, he had um, idealistic goals. He made a significant effort to make it easy. Right. You know, but if you look at it from a sort of linguistic theory point of view, you will always be able to find things that, you know, could be done sure. differently or, or might lead to it being even simpler. Right. But in practice, it was simple enough that 
people with that idealism could pick it up and, and run with it. Right. And a lot of people um, have managed to let Esperanto to a conversational level who, at least in their own opinion, would not be able to learn um, some other natural right. language. That was the whole idea. Yeah. And that's still the idea today. I guess probably I guess we'll get back to like how the Esperanto community is now. But let's get back to your family history. Because we talked briefly about this in uh, yesterday in the Culinary Festival. But can you give us like the how far back does it go? Because you were brought up as a native Esperanto speaker. Yes. And then and then I, then you told me, but your mom was as well. So I was like, yeah. I was excited to hear just how far back it goes. I don't know how much, in, I mean, obviously when you go further further back, there's less and less information, but how much do you actually, how far does it go back basically in your family? I think you've pretty much covered it there. Oh, actually. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but did you so that's right. My mum my was born in Rotterdam yeah. um, and her mother was English and her father was Dutch. And um, they lived in Rotterdam, at least for the first few years of her life, um, until after the Second World War. Right. And then they moved to England. And my father was not brought up speaking Esperanto. Um, He um, started learning it when he was 16. Right. And... um, yeah, that, that's pretty much as far back as it goes. Right. But, but if, you, if your mother was brought up native Esperanto, the influence must have come from her parents. Um, but you don't know which one of them kind of started it or if it was both or back, back that far. Oh, I don't remember that. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it is interesting. And, and like we also talked about, when you think about the, the time, you said 1887? Yes. Yeah. And if it, was, if it was your grandparents, yeah, they are pretty early adopters of the language. I know they're not probably you know first generation, whatever you want to call it, but you know to have adopted it somewhere you know between the twenties and thirties, probably that's pretty early in in the life cycle, isn't it? Sure. Although it was around that time that there was a big sort of wave of popularity um, of Esperanto. Right. So you I think, think that's connected to, to when your family started learning it? I, I don't know if it's connected or not, but it, it's certainly coincidental. I think it, yeah. um, I don't remember the exact dates, but it was sort of around that time. Right. So I guess the big question that anyone, uh, everyone asks you, and then the big question is like, how was it <laughs> you know, when you were growing up? And I know you, you, it's hard to compare because obviously you would have had to be grown up as an English native speaker and to compare it to how it was as an Esperantist, but I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. So, so how was it to be brought up? And did the kids around you in the neighborhood uh, make fun of you for speaking this weird language? Or Well, of course they did. Yeah. Right? Kids will make fun of you for anything that's a little bit unusual. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But, <laughs> so, so how did it work? Were you in a... Um, uh, and was it just your family, or was you, were you living in, in kind of a place where it was common, or it was just no? It was it was pretty much just my family in the local area, but we did um, you know we did make connections with other families right. um, who were doing similar things. So you know we travel around a bit and, and you know go and visit some. Sure. My, my parents would go and visit their friends from the Esperanto movement, and and you know if they happen to have kids as well, then we go and play and talk in Esperanto and so on. Wow. So. Yeah. Was there any difference in like the you know when the, when you hear your parents speak even in English? I mean, they have a very different way of speaking. Like the do they call it the register or the domain or the mode or one of these linguistic things? You know, they kind of they change depending on who you're speaking to. Is there a difference in Esperanto? when it's spoken like say for my parents and then your generation of Esperantists and, and those speaking now have you seen any kind of developments in that in that area 
Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, so that I mean, it is a, a living language nowadays. So you know, there are new words that come into existence, slang, um, slang sort of things. I mean, there's one word that's particularly coming to mind now. Um, yeah. And for years, there was really no word that corresponded to the English word "cool." Oh, really? Like that's cool, right? Right. And you know, a few years back, somebody coined one. Yeah, what was it? Uh, it was Moyosa. Moyosa, okay. And um, that's actually kind of like a, an abbreviation. Uh, it sort of stands for um, Moderna Jungstila. Okay. Which is like modern young style. Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like, it's not a direct translation, but it's kind of the essence of the right. word cool. It's an interpretation almost. Yeah. <laughs> so you would say that, that because it's a living language, there's definitely kind of a difference between young people as Ranto and those who were kind of, you know, started learning it maybe 40, 50 years ago. I, I wouldn't say it's a huge difference, right. but you can see a bit of that evolution going on. And that's interesting, I think, because when you have a constructed language, and we have uh, Pono, um, as we talked about that a little bit as well, how that is a fixed vocabulary, sort of. I mean, that's the theory, but it seems to be... I'm sure it isn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's it, it, it says on the cover and in the introduction, 120 words, but it is, I mean, it's not, new, it's not totally new, but it's way newer than Esperanto, of course. But that's the, the contrary. So in Esperanto, it is a language. If there's a need for a word, and you say that's probably what the community felt like, there's no, I can't say, ah, that's great, or that's cool, or something. And the community kind of goes together and, 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 uh, and come up with one. Well, all it takes is for one person to start using it. And right. if other people like it, if other people find it fills a niche, you know, it's going to catch on, isn't it? Right. So how did it work practically? Were you, in terms of school and, and, and things, how did that connect? Were you uh, homeschooled or...? No, I went to uh, normal school. Right. So English was, of course, a big part of what yes, that absolutely. must have been. And um, so, so how did you... I mean, when you're a child, I know children are very good at, at being multilingual, but how did you feel about it? Do you have any memories from, from your childhood of like the, the, the balance between English and Esperanto, like how did it feel for you as a, as a person? Did you have any memories of that? Well, I remember my first, um, well, let's say first few weeks at school, yeah. actually, because um, at that time I wasn't all that confident in English. Right. So I, when I started school, yes, I was able to speak English, but I didn't really feel that I could express myself that easily. Right. So I felt like I was stumbling. Now, you know, being of such a young age, obviously it didn't take too long to pick it up. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I was definitely um, a lot stronger in Esperanto at that time than, than I felt in English. Yeah. So did that, that of course, you said kids always uh, make fun of each other and, and stuff. So it must have been stressful at times as well to have that kind of... You know, come in as kind of the hard one out, so to speak, I'm sure. Oh, sure. I mean, there are obviously many other things that, that the kids could choose to pick on. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just that. But um, it did, uh, I think it it did make it a little bit difficult, you know, when I was upset about something and just wanted to express myself that way. Right. But nobody at your school understood it or... No. Right. Yeah, see, that, that for me would be very kind of emotionally hard because you have nobody to kind of speak your inner and most emotions. I mean, you could try it in English, but it's just not the same, is it? 
Well, I, I did eventually manage to do that in English, right. clearly, right? <laughs> That's good. Yeah, so like I said, kids, kids pick this up, stuff up quite quickly yeah. and, and, you know, it didn't take too long. It's a big advantage. Yeah. Um, one of the advantages of learning uh, Esperanto, and I guess we should touch on some practicality as well, uh, people tell me that they get a good sense of grammar without being confused by complexity. So the, you, te- you get taught kind of the basis of tenses and cases and and all these uh, kind of grammatical uh, phenomena that appear in most languages. So by learning Esperanto, you're kind of doing it as a stepping stone to learning very complex grammatically uh, languages. That's what people tell me. But when you're a native of Esperanto, surely you're not taught kind of the in-depth of the grammar. You're just kind of taught like through speaking, right? So would you say your experience of the Esperanto, what do you call it? Esperanto grammar? Is, is that the... Um, do you, is that less of people who learn it today or did you also have kind of a, a I mean a, an introduction or a schooling in the grammar behind it or did you just learn it kind of by speaking I think probably a bit of both right um, but then the, the Esperanto grammar is, is very regular and you know, there are easy to see patterns right right like every single noun ends in the letter O You can't oh, miss it. Oh, really? Okay. You see, there you go. Um, That's a top Esperanto tip for people who haven't learned it yet. Yeah. If you see a word ending in O, <laughs> it's probably a noun, uh, yeah. Or a name, I guess, if, you, if your name ends in O, or do you change it then? Sorry? If, if your name ends in O, like Fernando, yeah. then that could exist, I guess. Or do you change it like Russian? Well, um, so, so names, I mean, some people take names as they are some people try to turn them into Esperanto names oh really <laughs> that's kind of like, give an example of like an Esperanto name like uh, do you know Chris for instance or Christopher um, Christopher so um, what would they try to do with that so I, I, I um, know somebody who calls himself Christopher oh really <laughs> that's pretty funny yeah well there you go and um, so, so you didn't you didn't really you want i mean, when people learn Esperanto, they, they seem to focus a lot on the grammar because it's simple. So why, why not just dive in and really get the full picture? Whereas if you're in a language like Russian, where there's tons of grammar, you can barely kind of scrape the surface, really. Absolutely. Um, so, but, but because you had it as a kind of a native, natural way, you, you say that you, you had some grammar, but it was probably less than those who, who pick it up as a second language. So I, well, I, d- I don't know about less. Um, maybe less formally taught but right um, you deduced yeah. it maybe well possibly I mean I, I think I had a mixture of picking it up and you know my parents explaining it to me and, and right. so on but it's also fairly simple to explain I mean um, you have the basic concepts of grammar and and you, you're going to have to explain that at some point in whichever language right, right. whether that's at home or at school yeah Um, I do remember when I was trying to learn French at school. Yeah. I remember seeing my classmates around me struggling to understand the parts of speech and the really basic concepts of grammar and the wow. teachers struggling to explain it. Okay. And I had a an epiphany when I realized that when the teacher says noun, they mean a word that ends in O in Esperanto. Right. Wow. When they yeah. say adjective, they mean a word that ends in the letter A. Wow, so you connected the dots. Yeah. And from that point onwards, it was really easy to understand parts of speech and to relate the grammar. That is really interesting, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but I guess you can do that for most, well, not most languages because they're not so regular, but in 
in in languages that focus a lot on endings, like uh, something like Russian, I keep referring to Russian for some reason, but uh, you know where all the endings are very uh, important to the cases. I guess you could make kind of the same realization there, and then deduce the meaning if you see that the word is in is in the location, the location ending ending in e usually. Uh, then I guess you could kind of guess the meaning of it, and, and is that what you did for French? That you, you knew it was a noun, and then maybe you knew the word before or something, and you kind of went, yeah, thought about it and then deduced it. Well, sometimes. Um, yeah, sometimes words are similar, so sometimes you can pick that up as well. Right. But the, in terms of the endings, um, so Slavic languages tend to have uh, the thing where, because they've got, most of them have a lot of genders right. as well. So there's only so many vowels you can use for right. word endings, and so you end up having um, lots of different gender case combinations that have actually the same ending. Right. So it's... It's easy to work forwards, but not always easy to work backwards. Right. So you'd have to, you would end up with like two or three possibilities. That's the furthest you can narrow it down. Yeah. Right. But in Esperanto, it's always regular and you can always... Or, yeah, they're more distinct in Esperanto. Right. Um, so the, the endings don't tend to be reused for other grammatical concepts. Right. And I think that's a good way to start creating a language like make unique endings or concepts so you don't confuse them. Yeah. Because I guess that's the problem with also German. When people learn German, I know from my own German that the whether it's feminine, masculine, or neuter, a word, if I don't know what a word is, you know, of course I'll think about if it ends in E, it's usually this, and if it ends in Shen, it's neuter, and every these rules we heard in school. Yeah. Um, but other than that, if you don't know that, you are you can't speak correctly. Because they're the same, they're not. You can't just separate them. But if every word ending in e, everyone was feminine, and every word ending in o or whatever was neuter, and you had rules for everything, it'd be less complicated. And that's kind of the Esperanto, isn't it? Well, apart from the fact that we don't have grammatical genders in Esperanto. <laughs> there you go. So that's another plus. If you don't like German because of the genders, learn Esperanto. Absolutely. Um, and learning Esperanto is, is uh, I mean, we're here at a Polyglot conference. It's not an Esperanto uh, yeah. event. And I know you've been to uh, a lot of the Esperanto events. What are the differences in kind of the, the, the feeling and the vibe between an Esperanto event and, and an event like this where it's all the languages? Is there a difference or...? You know, it's pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, largely because I think this event was modelled on the experiences that people had with Esperanto right. events. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Due to the... There's um, the, there's less Esperanto here and more other languages, right. which you would expect, or certainly I would expect. Um, but then, you know, I. Last night I had an experience. I, I was um, about to walk into the Gufuyo, which yeah. is the the tea room, and this is a con this is one of those things that has come straight from the Esperanto right. world. And I was having a conversation with somebody in English as I was walking into there, and I I saw this sign on the wall, and I thought I was about to walk into this quiet place in the middle of an English conversation, and I actually felt a little bit guilty right. about that. <laughs> There was just a moment until I remembered this is not an Esperanto event. Right. It's okay. <laughs> so you're feeling compelled to switch to Esperanto at that moment when yeah. you saw the sign. Uh, but sadly, you, the person you were speaking to didn't understand Esperanto, maybe. I don't think the person no. I was speaking to speaks 
success chapter at least not enough to have that conversation (laughs) but of course um, there is a community feeling and and I I hear that a lot from the people who are well is there a difference between saying I speak Esperanto and I'm an Esperantist maybe I think it depends who you ask right Um, because I've heard people use both yeah and it doesn't seem to reflect on their ability it seems like they choose that phrase like the people who say Esperantist I mean if I had to analyze it based on the language used I would say that Esperantists are more kind of uh, passionate about the movement and the yeah. things behind it and the people who speak it well I just speak it like any other language you know, it, it's not that they hate it or anything they just don't distinguish between Russian and Esperanto yeah. absolutely that's, and, um, that's basically the distinction that I would draw between those two terms right a lot of people don't a lot of people will call you an Esperantist because you speak Esperanto And um, I think there's quite a strong feeling, especially, I think, among the the older members of the movement, that that speaking the language and being part of the movement are one and the same thing. Okay, yeah. Is that something that's changing now, then? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because I definitely feel like you can, from what I've seen people do and, and things... You can definitely learn a language without really caring too much what's going on behind the scenes, you know. Sure. Yeah. And I think that that's good, isn't it? To have kind of both in the... In the oh, absolutely. I, I, I do find it a little bit uncomfortable when people assume my politics based on which language I speak. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is. Now, the fact that... <laughs> well, they're not always right, but the fact that sometimes they get it right isn't really the point. Right. No, it's just the, the assumption itself. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So what would you... I mean, I, I definitely have some opinions about the, the Esperanto community as a, as a unit, but I guess I want to... I'd like to you to describe it in like a, a few a few words or sentences, uh, how much you need. Like what, what would you describe kind of family or the unit that is the community? What, how, yeah, how would you describe... What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I think a big thing um, about it for me is, is the Esperanto events um, because with Esperanto being so widespread um, geographically right um, that means that you're not going to walk down the street in your hometown and find that every person you come across speaks Esperanto so um, you need to either get together online or you need to travel right in order to meet with people and so there are these events there's lots of them lots of different events um, different sizes different um, right. different focus and there's a, there's an atmosphere yeah you go there and, and it's a kind of community feeling it's it's, it's hard a, to describe maybe yeah I guess so um, you just sort of go and, and it feels you're great. speaking a different language um, and and lots of people there I mean I, I can't say absolutely everybody's no. a friend but um, sure. you know lots of friends around and, and very friendly atmosphere usually and, right. um, they seem very welcoming as well like yeah. if you if you say oh I just started learning they would just immediately say what can I do to help and, and things so when you talk to them it, it seems like very welcoming community but at the same time I must say I feel like if you don't have any Esperanto or anything 
it is a bit of a, 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 a kind of a bubble or barrier almost. I mean, I, I could go up to someone and say, I really want to learn Esperanto, and I'm sure he would embrace me like I knew it already. But it's just from an outsider's point of view, there is a bit of this group kind of mentality. And um, is this something that, that, that you, I guess, agree with the observation to start with? And, and do you think that, how is that being, I guess, countered in the, in the community? How are you trying to make it not this secret club, but you know, going by the philosophy of everyone is welcome and we're unifying everyone. Because I do think it turns some people off that it's like, oh, we're going to the Esperanto events and when we speak Esperanto. And um, what do you think about this kind of group mentality? Well, I think it's it's almost a, um, a necessary result of having a group that is actually making an effort to speak the language and use the language. Um, it can be difficult and I'm sure it does put some people off um, but the fact is if, you, if you're there to speak a language you have to put some amount of effort into learning at least some of that language of before you're actually going to have any success with that yeah. um, so yes people who know maybe two or three words and nothing else are, are really quite likely to struggle in that environment right. but uh, we do recognise that people will come along and actually we do sometimes encourage people to come along if they really have the interest um, and do where like possible yeah that's right and where possible uh, we try to make sure that there's some sort of um, beginner's course going on um, that's usually good, yeah. Yeah, usually um, either somebody who's who's good at teaching with a method that doesn't require any other languages or a language course based on the local language of the event uh, where, where the event is held or something like right. that where it's likely that the majority of beginners are going to speak a, a particular language. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's still... It sounds like there's something... Like, there sounds like there are positive uh, actions being taken. Yeah. So so they do recognize that, okay, we will try and open up more. Um, that, that sounds great, actually. That's a, a good reassurance because I want to get into sure. it uh, <laughs> soon. So it's always nice to... I mean, everyone I talked to at this event who are, who are very much into it, and, and yourself included, been very, like every question I've had, even if there's a hint of skepticism or criticism even in, in, in my tone, you've always been very patient with me and and kind of said, well, this is how I feel. And, you know, some languages, if you try to criticize them, they almost feel like a, an insult to their person, you know. Oh, you get that too. <laughs> oh, you get oh, that really? too. <laughs> there are it's really uh, Esperantists who are, what do you oh, call yeah. them, purists? Or <laughs> well, there, there are a lot of people who, who really... Um, as sort of more into the ideology than they are experienced in methods of teaching. Right. So, you know, it, it can be really quite uncomfortable sometimes to, to see this happening where, where somebody says, oh, right, you're a beginner, right, let me um, now sort of coerce you into learning my way and, and oh. doing this. And, you know, so then, wow, so it's almost political pressure. <laughs> almost. I mean, I think generally they mean well, but don't really know right. what, what they actually end up doing and I think that has put a lot of people off Right, I think that's a shame and, and at least when I when I see people doing that I, I try to find a way to explain to them why that might not be the best way of, um, of dealing with people but that, that's yeah. not an easy thing to explain to somebody as long as that's the kind of the exception that is unusual for that to happen then I guess it's still positive mostly you know you can always have those one one out of a group of let's say 10,000 people if it's only one who has that kind of tendency then I, I wish it was that rare 
Okay. Yeah. Well, there's still work to do, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and you also said one of the first things you said was that Esperanto is not perfect. Yeah. And by extension, the Esperanto community can't be perfect either. Of course. So, I mean, that's like any language. There will be people who, who misunderstand or at least don't know enough about like normal general sense I guess to uh, to actually convey what they think because they probably mean well like you, like you say they probably just want to really make sure that they understand what they believe is right yeah um, great we talked a lot about the community about the what was the language your personal experience um, I guess I, I'd like to end with a little um, talk about the practicality of it uh, because often when we do these shows it's mostly for people to kind of feel like they leave the show with something that they can, you know, use in their everyday. So I guess I'll ask you, why should anyone learn Esperanto? We already touched about the grammar, but are there any other things that you feel that I can boost maybe language learning or personal development? Or is there any maybe soul searching? Or is there anything that you can think of that would be a, a positive effect of learning Esperanto? So I, I think that the reasons for learning a language um, are often very personal and um, I'm really reluctant to sort of give, try to give one reason and say this is why you should right. learn Esperanto right? because I think that's unlikely to work for most people. It's also one of those things, I mean, for a lot of languages, the reason people expect to hear is, okay, why should I learn Spanish? Because you want to go to Spain on holiday and then right. you'll be able to talk to people. <laughs> right. um, but Esperanto doesn't have a country full of people uh, where you can go on holiday, right. so clearly that's not going to work. No. <laughs> There's no country of Esperanto just yet. No. Um, there are one or two places where um, where people do experiments and, and you know try to sort of build a community or something like that, right. but that, that they're few and far between. Yeah, and it's also a little bit, you know, the Tower of Babylon is that you're kind of slowly creating that unified human race that is so defiant towards God or whatever the story was. I, I had it in Latin of any, of all classes. <laughs> but uh, they're talking about the language of, uh, is it Babel or Babylon? But the language of that city anyway, where they, they said that if you unite in that way, God will strike down on you or something. And I think that's very biblical, of course, very religious, but isn't there kind of a problem fundamentally with wanting to unify everyone. Like, I mean, that that can't be the vision still, can it, from this round? I don't think the vision was to make everybody the same. I think the vision was to give people a means of communicating with each other and understanding each other. Right. And I think that that's a subtle distinction, but an important one to me. Right. Um, but going from that to making, like, concentrations of Esperanto speakers, thus creating small Esperanto outpost so to speak yeah. isn't, that, isn't that kind of going a little bit in that direction though I, I guess it is in a way um, but I don't think um, I don't think anybody's seriously going to try to make the entire right. world um, use it as a first language right. um, that would be our language I mean the, the original the original ideal was that it, it would be a second language for everybody right and um, explicitly preserving national languages, national identities right. and everything else. As for why to learn it, I mean that's that's one reason that you will hear is because world peace. World peace. <laughs> um, it's good. Why do people but, learn it? I guess it's a way to turn the question around. People you talk to at Esperanto events. So there, what have they told you about why they learn it? So there are 
there are a number of reasons why people do learn it. I mean, um, one reason that um, that I find to be quite compelling is that um, as somebody um, from an English-speaking country, I can go to another country and chances are I'll be able to find somebody on the street who speaks English right. in a lot of countries. Okay. Not everywhere, but a lot of countries. And if I do the same thing, if I look up somebody in that country who speaks Esperanto, there's a good chance that I will get a different reception from that person. Right. They feel like you're part of the family almost. Not yeah, visited. a lot more. Um, and, and less of some foreign tourist who is coming with the language of imperialism or whatever <laughs> else it might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's definitely, um, you get to see a different side of the cultures that you visit. Right. Um, like couch surfing for Esperantists is something I've heard of as well. Yeah, that's the thing. That's, yeah. that's how do think. <laughs> that's been around for a lot longer than... than um, the, 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 right, the real couch surfing. <laughs> well, the real, the, the, the universal one anyway. <laughs> so the, the one off that name. Right. <laughs> the good... Uh, so it's a good tool to when you travel if you want to travel to connect with similarly minded people in other cultures where if you just came as an Englishman speaking English they would just automatically be distant from you they'd be distant as, as a kind of oh you're a foreigner I mean we don't hate you or anything but there's not that closeness absolutely yeah. I mean that the reception you get as an English speaking person differs in different parts of the world of course yeah. um you know, as, as you would expect, but yeah, it allows you to have a different perspective. And there's, of course, the Esperanto events. How often will, will there be? Would it be a few a year, or is it one big one a year? Oh, there's loads of them. Right. Different sizes, different shapes. Oh, okay. So you um, could go to 12 to 20 a year if you wanted to, if you had the time. If you had the time and the money, mostly yeah. the time, really, then right. you could probably do that. But um, unfortunately, that's not really uh, compatible with having an right. office job. And of course, if you're into language, which you probably are if you're listening to this, then the people you meet at Esperanto events, most of them will probably also be interested in some form of other foreign language learning, I would imagine. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. Um, I mean, this is one of the similarities between Esperanto events and this polyglot event, right. is that, okay, there are more people here who speak piles of languages, but you get quite a big crossover, and, and there are lots right. of people at Esperanto events who, you know, you will hear lots of different languages, yeah, um, as well as Esperanto. I find that really exciting to, like, walk down the hall and just listen to all the languages that's being spoken, Yeah, and um, I, I, I'm really happy about this event. I mean, I think they did a fantastic job organizing. I mean, first time, and Berlin, I think, is a great place, because for, for me as a Dane, uh, Copenhagen, Berlin, it's like, uh, it's a 40-minute flight, but not only that, it's a very popular one, so it's a discount airline, you know, EasyJet, they'll fly there. Uh, if I have to go to, let's say they were talking about doing one in Toronto, that will cost me probably 10 times as much, yeah. which is ridiculous, and I would not be able to go. But central uh, Berlin is like Central Europe, you know, people can come from all over, and they have. I mean, I've seen people from Australia and Brazil. I mean, it's yeah. insane, and I, I really uh, applaud those... Uh, those hosts. Um, Gavin, I think uh, we're at uh, about the end of, of this recording, but do you have any kind of uh, closing thoughts or, or things you feel like we didn't quite cover or any closing statement or <laughs> remarks? <laughs> you want the, the, the mic is yours. 
Well, um, yeah, thank you for having me on your show, really. And um, (laughs) it's great to be here in Berlin and um, to be around a couple of hundred people who are seriously into languages (laughs) and just have such a great experience here. And um, it was great to... um, to talk to people I, I did a talk yesterday yeah. about this topic about being oh, racist and native just, why don't you just uh, take a minute to t- tell about your talk I mean uh, you, you said to me that you know the talk itself was what we've kind of talked about already the yeah. history and, and your history but uh, the people the questions you got you're a bit disappointed with uh, no not at all always the other way around <laughs> <laughs> no it was great what did, people, what did people want to know about the Esperanto or, or your story well, I mean, there, there's quite a lot um, that people want to know. I mean, um, people's first reaction is, wow, native Esperanto speaker, you know, right. does that really exist? Is that possible? Yeah. How many are there? <laughs> Do you know how many there are? Uh, last time I looked on Wikipedia, it says somewhere between 200 and 1,000 in the world. Wow, so, so you're quite unique, actually. Well, that's great. I, I wish I could have made it, but it's that's the problem with conferences. They put two to three talks at the same time. And, oh, yeah. I, and I knew uh, we'd talked before and I knew I was going to have the pleasure of asking you everything I wanted uh, in person so That's just right. I could not make it but I'm glad to hear that it went well and, and people were happy to, to hear about, more about this incredible uh, story and movement I guess and I hope that uh, for, certainly for me this event has broadened my view of Esperanto and it really has given me the uh, before I was kind of skeptical I was like why do I need this but now that I've met people and they've told me their stories and your stories and you told me the benefits and advantages, I definitely want to learn it. Also because it's so easy. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm lazy and I am also very you know, practical. If I can learn a language, which it is obviously, in, in you know, a, a short time, I, I think people tell me in like six weeks or something, you do very well in six weeks, uh, particularly with knowledge of German and English and Yes, Danish as well. That's right. If you have experience of language learning, then six weeks of concentrated effort is likely to get you to a point where you can be conversational. Right. Just come and meet people and listen in and slowly develop that fluency. Yeah. Great. And I think that also gives people a little bit of hope who are listening out there because they're like, oh, I can't learn another language. Too hard. But the fact that you say, you know, six months and... Of course, we have to uh, reiterate, it is a language. It's not, you know, a word game with like 20 words and then you suddenly speak. It is an tr- right, actual yeah. language and, and you, you won't be about this, uh, that you said that you have to learn it like you learn any other language. It's not yeah. a walk in the park to learn. Sure. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's easier than many languages right. um, by you know, quite a long way, but you still have to put in the effort. It's still right. a language. It still has words that you have to learn it yeah. still has grammar that you have to get used to right <laughs> yeah and if you're not used to some of the things we talk about like the endings and the cases if you come from a language that isn't so heavy on that that's of course something you need to get your head around I mean, yeah. even understanding the concept but that will help you in turn understand the next language if, it, if it's yeah. a language that has those concepts so Amazing. I, uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time and, uh, and I think we should go back and uh, listen to some uh, some talks about what's on now anyway. I don't know. Oh, we'll find out in a minute. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> but thank you so much, Kevin. And, uh, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you and um, some of your listeners on um, at the next Esperanto event. There you go. Yeah, that's a good advertisement. <laughs> Thank you.
for listening to the Actual Fluency Podcast. For more information, be sure to check out actualfluency.com. Until next time, enjoy learning and have a great day.